1: All of you. Hey, and thanks for being here today. It's good to see you this morning. My name is Tom. If I haven't met you, it's my privilege to bring you the the teaching, the conversation today. And I, I've been trying the last few weeks to get us back into the mood of asking questions. Have Any of you noticed how it went? i the pump here. Hoping maybe today when I throw it out for some questions, you might have some. Now, um, If any of you read my email, the email I send out on Friday mornings, you know now, if you didn't know before, something uh, that's true about me, which is that I'm I'm a conflict-avoidant person by nature. Anyone else with me on that? How many of you love a good fight? Anyone? Oh, oh yeah, there's a few of you. Good, good. Well, we need each other, don't we? Well, the truth is... I don't mind sparring in good fun, and I don't mind a good healthy debate, but when things get bloody, particularly when things get really uncomfortable relationally, I have a natural tendency to want to sort of back out of the conversation, smooth everything over, a lot of ducking and weaving going on. I can be guilty of evasive maneuvers, you know. This is particularly true in relational stuff, particularly true in, you know, family or in in church. But it's even maybe more true if I'm engaging in conversations with people who are sort of far outside the faith, maybe just exploring things. If things get a bit rough, man, I want to smooth things over. You with me? Yep. Okay. I have a preference for the gentle approach. Which can mean I have a preference for kindness over clarity sometimes, which is not good. Uh, And when things get heated... I want to back away. But what about those times when confrontation is actually necessary? Like when there's got to be a fight. What about those times? I confess that in my life, um, engaging in good, good conflict has been a huge area of emotional and spiritual growth for me. It's been the place that God has chosen in his wisdom to use to grow me up. And so, over many years now, I am—I've been learning to fight well. <laughs> Doesn't mean I enjoy it. And and I think when I look back at my life and I, I look at the the, the screw ups that have happened relationally or in, in the church or whatever, it's often because guess who was ducking out of a fight? Yeah, me. So this has been the place where God has really helped me uh, grow and learning how to engage conflict well, how to fight right. Um, how to know when to be soft, you know, but also when to be hard-headed, when to push through. Um, that has been a huge learning curve for me. Huge. Well, why am I saying all this? Well, because the story in Acts today kind of serves it up. It's a big fight. And we get sort of front row seats to this battle between two, well, men, sort of, but between two spiritual sides, both each seeking to claim a great a great prize. And it's through this story that we have to face up to the question of confrontation. We have to learn something about fighting well, or as I called it, maybe the mixed martial art of evangelism. How do you like that? So we're going to continue on our story in Acts, and if you're new with us, you're a guest with us, we've been exploring Acts, which is this uh, early history of the first Christians. So in the New Testament, opens up with four stories about Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They kind of tell the story of Jesus from different angles, but they all essentially tell the same story. And then the fifth book in the New Testament is the story of Acts, which is the story of the earliest Christians learning to follow Jesus. And... What we discover in that first story is that Jesus, it kind of overlaps with the resurrection of Jesus and and Jesus is with His disciples and He's telling them that God had always intended this. God was going to come, this is astonishing, and He's going to live inside of them. That God was actually going to come and take up residence in His people, among His people, and that when God did this, when the Holy Spirit had come, God's people would be filled with, with power. And that power would enable them to witness to Jesus right from their hometown to the ends of the earth. Give them power to speak, power to live, power to live this new creation life in, in ways that people people noticed. And they were like, tell me more. And, and, and they were able to point people to Jesus and say, there's a new king on the throne, and new creation has begun, and Jesus rose again from the dead, and you've got to know this because this is really important. And so the news is spreading. And we've been learning this through Acts as, as the story's been unfolding. And we're now at this place in Acts where it's like a hinge point in the story of Acts. We're about halfway through and the first half of Acts has featured, Jesus said, um, you know, you have power to be among witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, which was the surrounding area around Jerusalem, to the ends of the earth. And the first half of Acts has featured the J- Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and has now just begun to go out to the ends of the earth. And so um, we've seen uh, this vicious man, Saul, who was zealous and trying to destroy the church and and punish Christians and persecute them and kill them, suddenly be converted. And he's now a great follower of Jesus. And then we've also seen this first influx of, of people outside the Jewish faith. Cornelius and his household also come to faith. And so the ends of the earth part of the mission has now begun. And actually the rest of Acts really is all about that ends of the earth business and it features this guy named Saul as he begins with a variety of companions to take the news of Jesus to the rest of the world. That's where we're at in this story. We are at the very start of what is called uh Paul's first missionary journey when he goes out. And so that's what we're gonna we're gonna start by reading in Acts chapter thirteen today. If you have a Bible, feel free to look at it. If you have a phone, feel free to look at it. If you've never downloaded a Bible app before, I highly recommend the YouVersion app. You can read along. You can listen to it. Not now, but, you know, throughout your week. It's great. Nice audio stuff on there. And, uh, or just listen in as I read it to you. This is Acts chapter 13, uh, beginning just at the start. Actually, we'll touch a little bit of, of chapter 12. Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, and they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, who is called Mark. Now, in the church at Antioch, this is the city up to the north of Jerusalem in Gentile territory, this church in Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. And then Luke names five of them. Barnabas, Simeon called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they, and the they there is not these five guys, but the whole church, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed hands on them and sent them off. The two of them, sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia and sailed from there to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the Jewish synagogues. John was with them as their helper. Let's pause there for a moment. We'll keep going with the story, of course. But what do we know about these, these Christians here in Antioch? It's actually the second picture we've had of them. At the end of chapter 11, Dana spoke on this. We had the first kind of window into this early group of, of, of Christians in Antioch. And in fact, that was the first place these followers of the way, these these followers of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, is the first place they were called Christians, was here in Antioch. What do we know about this church if we take these two pictures and put them together? Well, what we know is that these are actually new Christians, all of them, Jew and Gentile, but new Christians. They've just come to follow Jesus, and there's lots of Gentiles in the mix. They're living out this witness to Jesus, this the fulfillment of what God had said he would do is happening here in this city in Antioch and they're growing rapidly what we also know from the story is that Barnabas and Saul have been part of that community for a while at least a year and they've been mentoring and teaching, helping them understand the big story, helping them understand how Jesus, the Messiah, is the fulfillment to all these prophecies that were given and how the Holy Spirit had come and how now they've been joined into the story. They're now part of God's people and all this new creation work that God is doing, they're helping it make, all make sense to them. And they've been teaching there and ministering there, kind of pastoring them. And this church has been growing rapidly. They're vibrant in their witness. And what we know about them, of course, we see in this in this picture today, is that they're a church that takes their gatherings in worship and in prayer and even in fasting very seriously. They're a church that is always ready, listening, open for how the Holy Spirit is working in them and what the Holy Spirit is saying to them. It's quite a picture of this community. And it's in that context that the Holy Spirit, we don't know how, probably through one of the prophets, spoke to the community and said, I want you to set apart Barnabas and Saul. Now, remember who Barnabas and Saul are to them. Not are they just two of their five you know, best who got named, but they're the two guys who they likely have the greatest sense of of debt to. Like, they're the ones who came and really... Help them understand the basics of the faith from day one. They're the ones who've been nurturing them. They're the ones who've been pastoring them, helping them come to grips with, what does it mean to follow Jesus now in my relationships with my family? What does it mean to follow Jesus now as a, as a guy who owns slaves? What does it mean to follow Jesus now as a, as, a, as a Jewish person who's now having to eat meals with Gentiles? Like, what does this all mean? And these are the guys who've helped them understand the basics of this good news of Jesus. And that's the two that the Holy Spirit says, send them on. I think that would hurt. Like, can you pick someone else, please? Someone a little lower on the rank, you know, someone a little... But it's these two guys that they owe the most to. The Holy Spirit says, I need you to be generous now. I need you to send them on. Because there's more people out there, just like you were only a year or two ago, and they're needed. They're needed out there. And the church responds and sends two of their best on into the mission that Jesus has for them. And that's what we're going to be seeing a lot of in the rest of Acts. Well, the first place that Barnabas and Saul go is to the island of Cyprus. This is a little map of their journey in this first, just, just chapters 13 and 14. It's called Paul's first missionary journey. And you're thinking at this point, Paul, who's he? His name's Saul. Well, it's going to be in this story that his name shifts to Paul. We'll see it happen. Um, but this is the first journey they take. So from Antioch to Seleucia, just like it says in the, in the story, to Salamis and then on to Paphos, they're on the island of Cyprus. And that's the focus of our story today. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll also hear some more stories of what happens on the rest of that journey. We don't know why they chose to go to Cyprus specifically. And we discover this through the story of Acts that most often the Holy Spirit says go, but he doesn't say where. And so the people involved have to discern and pray and decide and think, well, hey, you know what? That ship's going that way. Let's go. Uh, the odd time, the Holy Spirit steps in and seems to knock them there knock them there and say, go there. You know, that happens. But by and large, they seem to use their own understanding, strategic what, what matters. Who, do we know a guy that We know a guy there. Let's go there kind of thing. What we do know about Cyprus is that that's actually where Barnabas is from, which might make sense, like, well, where are we going to go, Lord? Well, I don't know. Let's go stay with Mom for a while. <coughs> I'm not sure. Um, but uh, it also is the most... If, if you're to get on a ship in Seleucia, it's also a very natural first first place to, to land. However, it happened. Here they are in Cyprus. They land and they make their way through the island telling people about Jesus. They start with the Jewish community. They always start with the Jewish community. makes perfect sense. They first inform the people who have been... Um, you know inheritors of the great story people who have been entrusted the very words of god who they they show up and say by the way everything you've been hoping for has happened in jesus so they show up to tell them that all the promises you've been holding uh, holding on to all the the covenant you've been part of has now been fulfilled in jesus they want to let them know And that's how the often um, the first believers are formed in a lot of these communities would be out of the Jewish synagogues. Now, not everyone was down with that, as we'll see in the stories that unfolds. But many Jewish people would come to follow Jesus, and then there'd be others who weren't having anything of it and often would cause problems for for Paul. Uh, But this is where he would always start. Luke doesn't go on about that here. We'll get a window in that more later. First, he has another story to tell what happened here on Cyprus because before too long, Barnabas and Saul are deep into Gentile territory and this is where things get confrontational. So let's read on. Acts chapter 13, uh, 6 through 12. Here it is. So they traveled the whole island until they came to Paphos. There, they met a Jewish sorcerer and false prophet named Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus means son of salvation. (laughs) So it's a little bit of like, woo. Um, he's, a, he's a sorcerer and a false prophet named Son of Salvation. Just let that set with me for a minute. Um, he was an attendant to the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. The proconsul, an intelligent man, sent for Barnabas and Saul because he wanted to hear the word of the Lord. News was getting out, right? Paul and Barnabas. Well, not this part. I've got to keep correcting myself because his name hasn't changed yet. Barnabas and Saul are out there talking in the Jewish synagogues, engaging with people in the marketplaces. We see that later on, this is how they did it. And word has come up. Oh, these guys have something to say. And so Sergius Paulus, very interested, he invites them to come and to speak. But, Elymas the sorcerer, because that's what his name means, we're told. So this guy's multiple names. This Bar-Jesus fellow, also known as the sorcerer, Elymas. He opposed them. And try to turn the proconsul from the faith. What did that look like? Yeah, have you ever wondered? What image comes to your mind of Elimus trying to turn him from the faith? Is there an image that comes to you? Can I geek out for a minute on Lord of the Rings? It's, 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 when, it's when Gandalf shows up at Theoden and Wormtongue is there. And everything Gandalf says, Wormtongue goes, Oh, Master, you know. Don't listen to him. You know, is that kind of thing going on? Yeah? Okay, well, that was just me then. But that's, that's just the, this is the image of Elemas the sorcerer. He's trying to turn the proconsul from the faith. So when the proconsul, when Sergius Paulus is injured, oh, two more, you have Elemas coming to the side and going, you don't want to hear what they have to say. You know, who knows who these guys are? Where did they come from? You know, they smell like they're from away. You know, whatever. Um you can roll with that for a while, folks. I don't know. There's a lot going on here. All right. He tried to oppose them. Tried to turn the proconsul from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked straight at Elymas and said, You are a child of the devil and an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Now the hand of the Lord is against you. You are going to be blind for a time, not even able to see the light of the sun. Immediately, mist and darkness came over him, and he groped about seeking someone to lead him by the hand. When the proconsul saw what had happened, he believed. For he was amazed at the teaching about the Lord. (laughs) That's a powerful encounter, isn't it? Between spiritual forces where the good news of Jesus clashes with the ugliness of deception. Where the work of the enemy is seeking to undermine the work of the Spirit but the Spirit is having none of it. Paul faces off with Elimus. But it's, it's more like one of those fights where the, the they get they're, they're, you know, the trash-talking each other and, oh, it looks like it's going to be fair. And then the one guy just walks out and just, BAM! And the guy's done. That's the kind of fight it is. It's kind of fun to watch, but then it's over. and You're like, oh, gee, I paid, I paid admission for this, you know. But here they are, the confrontation between Paul and Elimus. And I don't know about you, but... How do you make application from something like this? Have you had experiences like this? It's a little bit different, perhaps a little outside of our norm. And um, for a guy like me, you know, I don't like calling people children of the devil. Do you? And you think, oh, in the world are we supposed to take this to heart and learn from this? But I think there's something here for us. Or maybe just for me, who avoids confrontation. But I think there's something probably for all of us. Luke, the inspired author of this story, wants us to see something. What is it? What is it? Well, I think at least three things. When we train in the art of mixed martial art of evangelism, I think it's important that we know at least three things. This applies broadly to a lot of, a lot of confrontation, a lot of our engagement, but I'm going to try to apply it specifically to the situation we see here and see how that maybe works for us. The first thing we have to know is who we fight who we fight. We see this all through the story. But what we see here is that this confrontation that happens, the, the one that we are fighting, is actually the father of lies himself. The God of this world. Satan. The accuser. Now, that for some of us feels like hokey fairy tale. I get it. And for others of us, maybe all too real and even a little scary. Well, none of that's true in this story. What we just discover is that there is an active spiritual force seeking to dissuade and deceive others. And it's that being, that force that the battle is with. That is the enemy. Paul, later in a letter that he wrote, this is how he characterized it. He said, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. See how he characterizes it? That there's an active force seeking to shield people from even being able to see Jesus. That actively goes around trying to cover over, deceive, dissuade, distract. So that people aren't even able to choose for themselves. They're not even able to get a good look at Jesus and go, Oh, that's who He is? I'm interested. Tell me more. And so there's a battle going on for the hearts and the minds of people. Paul also reminds us in another place, as I I think I have on the screen, that we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. And this is something we have to understand. It is very easy for us, whenever we get into some kind of confrontation, to immediately think, that person's the enemy. That's what's really going on. Instead of backing up and remembering oh, right, we've got a greater enemy. There's an enemy who's actively seeking to destroy everyone involved, dissuade people from the truth, help them not even be able to pay enough attention to what's happening so that they can discover life and forgiveness. That's the enemy that we're fighting. And this story, even though it's a fight, it looks like a fight between just Paul and Elymas, it's really a fight between the spiritual forces of light and the spiritual forces of darkness. And so we need to know, and Luke wants us to know from this story, that there's a real enemy. And at times it's expressed, in this case through this Elemas fellow, but to know that behind that there's a real enemy who's seeking to devour and destroy people's lives. Keep them away, ultimately, from a life with Jesus. We're not to overestimate the strength of the enemy, but nor are we to underestimate him. C.S. Lewis, in his beautiful little book, The Screwtape Letters, have you ever read it? The screen tape letters is this brilliant imaginative exercise where C.S. Lewis wrote a series of letters from an elder demon to his um, nephew, protégé. <laughs> it's something else. And even though it was written like 60 years ago, it's still super relevant. And in this uh, you know, you, you learn a lot about the art of the enemy to destroy people who are before they're following Jesus and then, and then afterwards. And it's, it's super insightful. I encourage you to read it. But in his preface, uh, C.S. Lewis said this, that there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, about Satan or about demonic forces or whatever. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest, may I say, or fear, in them. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, whether you take the materialist option of thinking, oh, come on, that's just fairy tale, or the um, magical option of really being interested or or even fearful of them, um, C.S. Lewis says, the devil is quite happy with either option. This is the challenge. We have to know who our enemy is. We have to know where his power lies, but we also, as we'll see, have to know where our power lies and to know that this enemy, defeated by Jesus, now needs to be informed of his defeat by us. That's the first thing we need to know, who we fight. The second thing we need to know is who we fight for. It's really obvious in this story that the fight is first of all for those who are being deceived. Paul and Barnabas on their mission, helping people find and follow Jesus, engaging with people, suddenly come across a a person who's interested, and yet right there is someone who's actively trying to dissuade and destroy and distract this work of God taking place in his life. And that takes Paul off. Because he wants people to have an opportunity to discover who Jesus is. And now to find that there's someone in the mix, you know, funded by the enemy, as it were, who's actually trying to not even, this guy can't even get, get, a, get a proper glimpse of Jesus. He's trying, to, he's trying to turn him away before he even has a chance to explore faith. That's when Paul steps up. He steps up to do battle for the sake of someone else. This is why he confronts Elimus. The way he does. The story doesn't suggest at all, nowhere in the Gospels, nowhere in Acts, does it suggest that this kind of strong response, child of the devil and all this stuff, this kind of condemnation or confrontation is ever, ever, ever appropriate with someone who's wrestling with faith. Who's trying to understand, like, should I follow Jesus? I'm really not sure. We don't see any evidence of that. Rather, what we see here is... is 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 when when Paul sees the person who's trying to dissuade, that's when he speaks so harshly. It's not dissimilar to what Jesus himself did in the Gospels. He was always he was challenging. He would say strong things to people who were wrestling with whether they should follow follow him or not. But it was uh, religious leaders and, and Pharisees who tried to to get in there and dissuade people and distract them and pull them away. That's the people he spoke harshly to. This is the practice we see we need to fight for those who are being deceived or dissuaded. We need to step up into our place and, and, and advocate on their behalf and, and, and do battle, as it were, so that they have an opportunity to discover who Jesus is. But we don't only fight for those who are being deceived. We also fight for those who are doing the deceiving. Now, this may surprise you. But when confronting someone like Elymas in this story, who's been sort of wholly given over to the enemy, what we realize is that this bold confrontation, where Paul, you know, somehow under the power of the Holy Spirit, strikes the guy blind, what we realize at that moment is that's the only opportunity, it's the only chance for this guy to ever turn and find Jesus himself. Someone that is that far in, won't come around by having a nice little chat over coffee. They're not going to come around by some sort of winsome. No, no. And why does Paul know this? Because he was just like that guy. He was dead set, heading to Damascus to destroy more Christians. You know, pulling Paul off to the side and say, "Paul, you know, I really think you should check your heart, your motives. You know, the guy just feels a little mean." You know, what are you talking about? I'm on a mission from God, you know. The only thing that changed Paul was he got knocked off his donkey and and, and had to face up to who he was. And then guess who also spent some time in the dark? Paul himself. Three days he was blind. So when Paul confronts this elemus with such strong words, And then strikes him blind, as it were. And we think, whoa, what is going on this power encounter? What we realize at this moment is that also is him fighting for that man's sake. The only chance that he would ever turn and repent is if he could see what his life has become. And in this power encounter, realize that he's invested in the wrong one. He's backed the wrong horse. That he'd have a chance, maybe, maybe, maybe a chance of turning, just like Saul did. Now, we don't know Elymas' story. We don't know how it ended. But we do know it's the only chance he ever had. It also, again, explains some of the very harsh language and harsh ways that Jesus spoke to the religious leaders in his day as well. He knew that it's only through that very direct and bold confrontation that they may come to understand that they need to turn and live. So he fights also, and we fight also, for those who, who are doing the deceiving. All that to say, the Holy Spirit wants us to know what's at stake here. This battle that we're in, the times where we need to confront, is for the hearts and minds of people that God loves. Men and women and children that God prizes and longs to see them experience His forgiveness. To know that they, they've been washed clean and they've been brought into the family and, and, God has come to live inside them and all the freedom and the purpose and the life that that gives them. That's so what God longs for them to know and experience. And so we fight for them. We fight for the prize. We need to know that that is what's at stake. And the Holy Spirit teaches that as He reveals the heart of God to us. So we've got to know who we're fighting. We've got to know who we're fighting for. And then, of course, meaning you've got to know how to fight. We've got to know the style. Now, I'm not a mixed martial arts guy, although I took years of karate, although you wouldn't know it. But I do know that people have different styles, right? Classic kickboxing styles and taekwondo styles and jujitsu styles and wrestling styles. and Everyone has their different style. Well, truth is, so does Jesus. <laughs> He's got his own style of fighting. It's, of course, a metaphor for how we engage in this conflict. And what we learn from this story and the broadest scripture is that there's ways that are appropriate to this Jesus style of confrontation and fighting. And we see it even here in Paul's life. The first thing is, is that we fight in the power of the Spirit. We fight by the Spirit. That when we face opposition, we follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Who is in us? Who has prepared us? who has filled us and taught us through His Word, through the community, through each other, what it means to be attentive to the Holy Spirit and to follow His lead. And that preparation is key. Like any good boxing match, no one just wanders out on the mat to have a fight without some training. Right? Months, years of training has gone in in to preparing the fighter for the fight. And what we discover in this story is that Paul, when he shows up in this courtroom, or this, you know, whatever it was, not courtroom, the court, yeah, that's the word I was looking for, of Sergius Paulus, um, it's not like he just came in, like, what's going on? He was prepared. And when you look back in the story, you realize not only all his own personal preparation, but that community that had sent him, the worship, the fasting, the prayer, the laying on of hands, the commissioning, the anointing, going in the power of the Holy Spirit, all of that sits behind this. So that when he does show up and the moment is right, he is prepared for the confrontation. He is prepared to fight, not in flesh and blood, but by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what that teaches us is how critical this is, how critical it is that we gather to pray with one another, that we cultivate spiritual disciplines in our life, like worship like even, oh my goodness, fasting, but other things in our lives that make us more consciously aware of our dependence upon the Holy Spirit. That we cultivate an attentiveness to the Holy Spirit's voice through the Scripture and through prayer. So that we, when we come to those moments, we are able to hear the voice of the Spirit, to know what is going on, and to respond appropriately. Because the truth is, as we look at the rest of Acts, you look at the Gospels. Paul very rarely confronts like this. I mean, this is, this is kind of a rare deal. This isn't normal fare. But he follows the leadership of the Holy Spirit because when it's necessary, it needs to be done. He doesn't just decide, well, everything's a fight. Therefore, every situation I walk into, I'm going to just, you know, look, look around for who I can trounce. That's not Paul. That's not Jesus. That's not the Holy Spirit but rather by being dependent upon the Holy Spirit, by walking in the Spirit, by, by allowing the Holy Spirit to continue to root in His own life and in our own lives, attitudes and, and reactiveness and self-whatever, like when we're feeling uh, the need to preserve ourselves or, or feeling defensive, letting the Holy Spirit root that out of us so that when we're in a situation, we can depend on the Holy Spirit and follow His lead. We can, by the Holy Spirit, see what others maybe don't see. In this story, uh Paul looks intently at Elemas. And there's a lot going on. We see that actually show up a couple times in Acts. The looking intently. It's like the Holy Spirit at that moment is helping Paul see something that nobody else is seeing. This isn't just a cranky guy who stands on the side and gives the proconsul advice. This is a guy who's opposing the work of God. And so Paul responds, sees what's not seen. So, by the Spirit. Second, we fight in love. <laughs> But love is the driving motivation for our confrontation, for Paul's confrontation. It's not self-preservation. It's not anxiety. And it's not because he was offended. It's not because you're my, my my thoughts or my rights or nothing. Love, seeing what's at stake, seeing the people that are present. It's love that motivates the confrontation. This is a game changer for me personally. Now, when I wrestle through and I have for years with how to appropriately engage conflict, sometimes do well, sometimes not well, what was a game changer for me was this. When I started to realize that the reasons why I avoided conflict was because I loved myself more than I loved the people who were were in the situation. When that finally set home with me, my conflict avoidance, I'd like to tell myself it's because I want to keep the peace. I want people to, I don't know, feel loved. But when I really worked down to it, is because no, no, I love my own comfort. I love people loving me. I want people to speak nicely about me. All that stuff. I love me more than I love them, and that's what caused me to duck out. And that was true in relational conflict. It's true in more broadly, you sort of dealing with hard things and understanding that I need to get real on what how the love that God has for others needs to motivate me both to you know, be kind and gentle, but also at times to confront in love. Love needs to be the base motivation. And that's why our fighting is just you know, it's a metaphor. Our fighting isn't bloody. We're not chopping arms off or shooting people. We're actually trying to help. We're defending. We're advocating for. And at times that is very sacrificial, even when it's very bold. And the third one, is that we need, or the third thing we need to do, so we, by the Spirit in love, but also dealing with it head on. Willing to confront, at times, spiritual forces very directly. To speak directly to what's going on, even if others don't understand what's going on. To pray directly against spiritual forces of darkness or deceit so that people have a fighting chance of hearing the gospel, of responding freely to Christ. This doesn't always happen in the moment, it also happens privately as we pray for situations. We come to understand by the Spirit that there sometimes are people present who are actively trying to dissuade and deceive others from following Jesus. And so we do battle. We recognize that sometimes reason and discussion and just letting things roll isn't actually going to change the situation. There's more powers involved than just you know two minds meeting over coffee. And so we need to approach uh, these spiritual forces directly to do battle with them. To go head on. I haven't done this very much in my own life. A few times. Where I felt a very strong sense that I've got to fight spiritually. I remember a number of years ago um, I had run-ins with a fellow multiple times over years. He was the leader of a cult group and he would just literally prey upon people in stores. And he, he would come out to the Bible school I had gone to and would like look for people to, like, go after. And um, I, don't wanna, I don't want to set something up in your mind that, that's false here, but, but my sense, my strong sense whenever I was around this guy was that there was something deeply wrong. You know what I mean? Deeply off. And uh, I was a lot younger then, but I remember having a confrontation with him on the street um, a number of years later. Again, he's just kind of preying on people, and I felt, uh, within myself... A deep sense of wrongness and I've got to fight this. And so we ended up not coming to blows, but like spiritual blows on a street corner in Grand Prairie. And I remember and I, I gotta believe it was the leadership of the Holy Spirit that, that, um, it, it was one of the few times in my life where I, I just, I denounced him. I spoke very directly to him and I warned him that if he didn't change, uh, he would be, you'd be judged for his actions. Um, I warned him that, that you know, the time for repentance in his, in his case was, was shortening because he had set his whole life up to, to be this deceiving, destructive force in people's lives. And um, that wasn't me. I mean that in the sense that it was, it was one of those days where I just felt the Holy Spirit really said, Tom, it's time to really address this directly. And I appealed to him to repent, but I also warned him of the judgment that would fall upon him if he didn't. Of course, I have no idea. I know he died a couple of years later. I'm not going to suggest that was because of what I said. Uh, But but I have to believe also that if he didn't, uh, if he hadn't repented, which I don't have any evidence that he did, that he will face judgment for that because of the way he had given himself over to deceiving and hurting other people And there are times I think by the leadership of the 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 Holy Spirit, and that was not characteristic of me. I've already told you. I've already told you what I am, really, right? So to do that on a street corner in Grand Prairie, my goodness. Um, Anyway, uh, and that was you know 20 years ago, so I was even more wimpy then. And so at such times, though, I think the Holy Spirit leads us to deal with it head on. And then the fourth thing I'll say is that. We do so with the authority that Jesus has given us. Not with, you know, with, with, with uh, boasting, not with pride, uh, not with arrogance, but with authority, that, that seated authority that we know that Jesus has commissioned us to help others discover who he is, to share the good news. But the reality is we don't walk, into, um, we don't walk onto a level playing field. There are spiritual forces at work that seek to destroy people's lives and dissuade them from even discovering, even having a fighting chance of of wrestling with the claims of Jesus. And when we know that, we need to operate in the authority that Jesus has given us as his people. He's given us his Holy Spirit and he's given us the authority to speak truth into lies, to declare his kingship where there is a usurper who claims to have authority but doesn't. And so we operate with the authority that Jesus has given us, knowing that it's not about us, but it is about Jesus. It's about the people that Jesus died for and that we are actively commissioned to go and find for their hearts and their minds. That's what we're fighting for. We do so with the authority of Jesus. That's the style of fighting we have, by the Spirit, in love, head on, and in the authority of Christ. Those are the three things we need to know. Oh, look at that. 10 after ten after 11, we've got time for questions. So what questions do you have? What questions does this story raise for you? How does this story challenge you? Anything at all. I'll repeat it for the podcast. Uh, go ahead and shout it out. What kind of questions does this story raise for you? Oh, Lynn. Mm-hmm. So what you're describing, and I'll just say it sensitively for the podcast, is a family situation where um, a member of your family is, is in a practicing sort of role with witchcraft and, and claim, claims that as hers. And, and then all the family struggle that goes into that. Like, how do you relate properly? How do you speak truth into that? Yep, children involved. Yep, yep. Yeah. That's a tough situation, Lynn. And I know you and I have talked about that. What does it mean to then pray? And I'll just I'll recommend it straight out for you, that one of the things, and this isn't, I mean, you can see it in this story, but it's good practice, to call together a few people, Lynn, who would actually actually do the pattern, actually, that we saw in here. Worship, pray, and fast, together with you, for them. This is a spiritual battle. And, and so, when we consider, like, what's going to shake that thing loose is not going to be... Um, just, like, getting in there and, and, and fighting, you know, and I, we know that it's tricky when it's relationships, but to know that there's there, there's a deep desire the Holy Spirit has to bring freedom there. And so my strong recommendation is that you, and, and if there's anyone here today that would like to join Lynn in that, please talk to her about that, but to worship and pray and fast for their behalf, to, to, to actually do battle, as it were, um, for their sake, and, and commit to that, and, um, that will will have effect. Um, in the moment when you're in, interacting with your relations in that, um, we then can pray and, and your group can pray that the Holy Spirit would give you wisdom to know. Like when is it appropriate to confront? When is it not? Because it's not always appropriate. And so it, just because you know maybe there's a similarity in the story doesn't necessarily mean, well, then this is how you do it. We need to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and let Him lead us in that situation to know, like, how do I, how do I love, Um, how do I engage, when do I, when do I wait, but continue to engage and and, and fight off -off camera, as it were. And so, we'll pray with you on on that. But, but, but I urge you to find a few people who would join you in that, uh, a few of us who would join you in that. Other questions, thoughts, discussion. Doug. Yeah, you mentioned that. Oh, okay. Would you stand and pray for that, Doug, right now? Thank you, Doug, and thank you for just snapping that up. That's really good. Really good. Other questions or thoughts? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. hmm. Thanks, Ken. Thank you. What Ken is suggesting is that, uh, particularly focusing on that third point, but all of it, that yes, uh, you know, uh, it did come out of this very specific con- confrontation with spiritual forces. But what what you're saying is that more broadly, it it is a good model for re- regular confrontation, especially for those of us who struggle with that. Well, actually, probably just as much for those of us who like to fight. Um, that that there's there's aspects in that 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 we 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 let the Holy Spirit fill us and go by the Spirit and in love and head on with authority that those things also have real applicability to other conflicts that we have or, can I say it, need to have, but often haven't been doing it or doing it very well. So thanks for that, Ken. I hope that that's true. Um, I, I really hope that there's, there's something in there even for each one of us, uh, but particularly if you struggle with confrontation, that there may be something in here that helps us not just for that specific kind of scenario, but more broadly for any relationship struggles we may have. As I said, I I, I think I I, I said enough for you to know that my biggest area of growth hasn't been in this kind of specific area of confrontation with the spiritual forces, as it were, but more generally learning how to have good confrontation with people that I love uh, or people that I've struggled with, but kind of more normal life stuff. And that's been the greatest area of spiritual growth for me and emotional growth for me, has been having to having to come to grips with that. So thanks, thanks, Ken. Any other comments or questions? Oh, Joanne. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point, Joanne. So just for the sake of the podcast, but anyone else who didn't hear is that God used Paul um, to confront a person that was quite like him in that sense, and. And, and, and like, yeah, Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Yeah, he wasn't the guy, right? I mean, I'm not going to try to read too much into that story, but you notice who, who it was that spoke up and did the confrontation? Not the guy who's known as the son of encouragement, but the guy who's known as, you know, well, hard hitting. Yeah. And so God uses our story. And I think maybe he could see in him something of himself. And that's why that whole blindness thing, it's very interesting that that's, what was used uh, to confront him. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really great point. So just knowing that we don't know the rest of this man's story. And often when we're praying for a situation or we have engaged in a in maybe those kinds of things, we don't always see the end of that story. We don't always know how will that, you know, maybe I had the boldness to speak up or to engage or to do, but I don't know how it turned out And to, to entrust that to God. And, uh, you know, we often just don't know, do we? And and yet we can trust that God God's spirit is still at work. That's why in the scripture even we treasure those times when there's little hints that, oh, it did have an effect. Um, the, the classic one is Nicodemus, in the Pharisee. In, in the Gospel of John. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this this group of zeal well, not technically zealots, but zealous folks, um, they were always the enemies of Jesus, and we never really saw anyone uh, turn. But in the Gospel of John, we do. And, and Nicodemus, uh, we see a number of times, we, we kind of see the end of the story. Oh, it did have effect. But we often don't see that, and we have to entrust that God is still at work. Yeah. Any other thoughts before we close? Ken? So true. The need in confrontation to really be listening to the other side. Ken, you're absolutely right. And of course, the scenario we're looking at here was a bit different in that sense. Um, But when we're talking about relational conflict, we're talking about anything In the, the family of, of God, in your own personal family, we have to be profoundly aware that our own sin, our own blindness, our own anxiety, our own issues often cloud the problem, right? Which is why listening to the Spirit, being in community, growing in Christ, growing, becoming more mature is all part of that. Uh, But Ken, that's a really, that's really good advice that when we find ourselves in, in confrontation that we be listening as well as as speaking the, speaking the truth in love, but receiving that, particularly uh, from each other. So critical. So critical. Well, oh, Lindsay, yeah. Uh, I'm remembering something that's about someone by, yeah. by something. That's right. Uh, important to... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Absolutely. So, Lindsay, you're raising a really good point of like earning, earning trust so that when we do speak clearly it 's more able to be received and, and, and in this kind of conflict with LMS, you sort of think, well, how did that work? but remember what what happened for the proconsul like the the truth is Paul, even in this and this is a compressed story, but he gained trust with that with the other man because he in a sense was was for him, you know even in that interaction more broadly speaking, though people need to know we 're for them, and that only comes usually when there's been time, listening, care, relationship. And that's, I think, the practice of our, of our regular life. And, and, and that's how witness uh, most, most naturally goes out to Jesus. Um, there are times when we need to speak. And, and sometimes I think some of us at least can be guilty of delaying too long. But what we need to know is that that, that trust and that care that people know when we're when we're when we're talking about faith, we're talking about our life in Christ. We're not trying to shove something on them. We're actually trying to engage them in something that's real and meaningful. And because the trust has been built, they they they'll believe that even if they aren't ready to like check out Jesus. They they know that you're not doing that because you've ear tagged them for a project but because it's real and 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 uh, you're trustworthy. It's good. All right, we'll stop it there. Great question time. Woo, We'll keep doing that more. That's awesome. Listen, the focus in all of this is actually not on the fight. In spite of everything we just talked about. The focus is on the filling. The focus is on the Spirit. It's actually all the way through this passage if you look at it. It's the Holy Spirit actively working through His people that enables them to engage in whatever way and in whatever situation they come into. And so the focus here isn't just, let's learn how to fight better, but rather, let us be a people who are even more attentive to the Spirit's presence and work in us. So that the Holy Spirit is birthing within us such a desire to see men and women and children discover Jesus. Not because we want them religious. God, help us! We don't want any more religion! We want people to discover forgiveness. We want people to discover life. We want people to discover the God who created them and longs to be in their lives. And the Holy Spirit is the one who births that in us. And so my hope today is that we would walk away with a desire for the Holy Spirit to fill us so that we can follow Him wherever He leads us. The worship team is going to come and lead us in a final song, the song that we heard at the very start as you were coming in today. And as we do that, my invitation for all of us is that we, wherever you're at today, that you would respond to the invitation that God is offering to you. If you are a follower of Jesus, that you would say, Holy Spirit, fill me, teach me, confront me, Um, lead me in the way that you want me to go. Speak to me so I can hear you. For those of us who are here today that aren't yet sure about Jesus, and frankly, this message may have been a little weird I just want to say, thanks for being here, but also, like, what's your next step? Maybe it's to explore further who Jesus is. My invitation to you is, even during this next song, is that you state out loud, maybe you feel like you'll just be talking to the ceiling, but I believe God will hear you, that you just say out loud, or in the silence of your mind, what your next step's going to be. Maybe it's to come talk to me, maybe it's to to pray with someone, maybe it's to read a book, maybe it's to, I don't know, but what's your next step going to be to say that, to name that, for all of us, to make that next step in our spiritual walk. Let's sing.
0: Thank you for listening. We hope today's teaching provided you with life-changing truth and valuable insight. We hope you've learned of some practical steps forward in your spiritual journey, whether you're finding Jesus for the first time, or you have been following him for years. Do you know someone who would be encouraged by what you heard today? We invite you to share this podcast so they can be encouraged, too. For more information or to ask more questions, you can connect with us through our website, ericksoncovenant.ca. You can also find us on Facebook by searching for the Erickson Covenant Church.